uh, when things happen like have happened in this week, it, sometimes pastors like me, they think, let me put aside what I was going to teach on. I, I plan out my schedule a long time in advance. And it just so happened that this morning's message is about forgiveness. And so I wondered, should I set that aside? But I decided not to. I know this about forgiveness. I've been a pastor in, in one way or another since about 1994. That's when I started working with people as a pastor. And this is what I've observed over those years. When the theme of forgiveness is discussed in a setting like this, mostly what happens is people who listen, they try to imagine how they might forgive someone else for the wrong thing which they have done to them. And that would be especially easy to just think about today, this wrong that has been brought into our country. That's okay. What's more helpful and what we're going to try to do today is to think instead about the way that we ourselves need to be forgiven. It's not as common to think about that and maybe not as comfortable. But listen now, and I'm going to show you this today. The only way to think about how we could possibly forgive anybody else is to first of all see how we ourselves have been forgiven. And, and I would say that religious communities don't do a very good job, I think, of representing this fact. But what the gospel tells us is that God has forgiven all people. And that's an unqualified all people. Uh, our question that we've been asking together is what did Jesus do? And we're asking that because we believe, and, and we believe it because the Bible makes it fairly plain, that the most important thing that Christians have to bring to the world is a statement about the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, God actually did something for all people. And the New Testament talks about it in lots of different ways. It doesn't just have one way of talking about it. And we've been considering the different ways in which the New Testament talks about what Jesus did when he died on the cross. It just so happens that today we talk about forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. Listen to these words. These come from a letter that was written by a man named Paul to a group of new Christians in, in Colossa, a city uh, in ancient Greece. This is what he writes. When you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Now you hear there the image of the cross, and then beside it the image of a legal record with its demands against us. Try to imagine this for a moment, that all of the things that you'd ever done wrong were written down on a list. Would it be a long list for you? <laughs> you might think no, but here, this is what you must see here. There's a statement of fact that is declared here, and it says that when Jesus died on the cross, that record of every misdeed of yours, all the ones you know about and the ones you don't know about, the ones that you admit and the ones that you deny, the ones that you feel terribly guilty about and the ones that you've never yet grasped whatsoever, every misdeed, every misstep, every mistake, every intentional wrong that you yourself are guilty of, the ones that you carried in here, all of those, here it says that when Jesus died on the cross, that record was taken away from you and it was nailed to the cross. And that is one way of describing what happened when Jesus died. It's a way of saying that you are forgiven. You. Someone else, you let them think about themselves. You were forgiven when Jesus died on the cross. Forgiveness was one of the themes that was pretty prominent in Jesus' teaching. 
And I want you to look with me at a story that he told. It's in the book of Matthew, in the 18th chapter. Jesus was traveling with his friends, his disciples, and he was teaching them about the things that they must learn if they're going to follow him well. And he got on to the fact that in churches, people sin against each other. Did you know that people within the same church sometimes do the wrong things to each other? <gasps> it's a fact. If you don't have something against someone else in the church that you're going to, you probably haven't been going there very long. <laughs> and so Jesus taught the disciples that when one person wrongs another person, here's what should happen. When someone sins against you, this is what you should do. The reason Jesus taught about this, you have to grasp this, by the way, is because sins separate people from one another. So they don't have the love and affection and joy and openness and kindness that they were meant to have. The reason that we talk about sin in the church is because our sins make it so that we don't have the free and open love and affection that we would otherwise have with God. You are meant to have a kind of relationship with God that has nothing between you. And sin, it puts distance there. So Jesus is teaching his friends about what to do when one person sins against another. And he tells them, here's how it should go. And he describes the, the procedure. It's, it's, it's beautiful. This is Matthew 18. After he's done teaching, one of the friends who hears this uh, teaching takes Jesus aside. His name is Peter. And he has a question, a practical question for Jesus. Because when he's hearing this teaching about forgiveness, listen to me now, he's thinking about the wrong things that others have done against him. Okay, it's very typical. He's not thinking, hmm, what have I done wrong that I need forgiveness for? That has not crossed his mind. And so he asked this question of Jesus. This is verse 21 in chapter 18. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times, now, use your imagination. Peter's picturing a sort of courtroom. And in that courtroom, he's the plaintiff, the person who has a complaint. He's also the judge and the jury in his mind, in his imagination. And the one who's done something wrong a few times is the defendant. Does anyone else in here have that image of a courtroom in their mind when they hear about forgiveness? They picture the other person. You are the you're the person who's been uh, harmed. You're the jury and the judge. Is that you or not? It's me, in my imagination. So Peter says, how many times? Watch Jesus' response. This is verse 22. Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. When Peter said seven times, that was his way of, of sort of imagining the most that anyone could ever require of you. When Jesus said to Peter, not seven times, Peter expected him to say a number less than seven, not 77. And that was Jesus' way of saying, you are not even in the ballpark. You can't even imagine how much forgiveness is going to be required of you. Can you put yourself in Peter's position for a moment and be honest? What would you be thinking? I'll tell you what I'd be thinking. Jesus, you don't know. You don't know the person who hurt me. When a pastor starts talking about forgiveness, there are going to be some people in the room who've been hurt so bad the pastor has no idea how much grief it is for them to even be here. In some way, I hate preaching about forgiveness because I know maybe more than one of you, maybe a handful of you right now are thinking, how dare he suggest that I forgive that other person if he only knew what they had done to me. And, and I'll tell you why I know this. Because I have a few of those myself. When I start thinking about forgiveness, I think, yeah, I can forgive that person and that person, but that other one? You got someone like that? Peter did. 
And so Jesus says 77 times, Peter is standing there, I'm certain, with his mouth just hanging open. And so what Jesus does is he tells him a story in which he pictures a different courtroom than the one that Peter had been imagining when he asked. Okay, try to remember. In, in the question that Peter asked, Peter's the judge and the jury, and, and he's the one who's been harmed in his mind. Jesus knows that that's what he's imagining. And so Jesus asks him, and listen now, he asks you also to imagine a different courtroom setting when it comes to the subject of forgiveness. Okay, Here, here's what it is. This is verse 23. Jesus says this, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. The courtroom here has a king, and the king is the one who's in the right. The king has a, a group of slaves. The court is in session. The king gets his record books out and opens them up. These are the books that have an accounting of who owes the king what. And one slave and another slave and another come in because they have some debts and it's time for the accounts to be settled. And so this is the setting that Jesus asks Peter to imagine it. Can you picture it? Verse 24, when he began the reckoning, one owed him, excuse me, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. This sounds harsh. There's a man who can't pay back his debts. And so the king orders this man along with all of his family to be sold and everything he's got to make repayment. That seems harsh. It doesn't seem so harsh if you, re if you recognize how much he owes it doesn't hit us like it would have hit the original hearers of this story, but 10,000 talents is an impossible amount of debt. One talent is what a laborer can earn if he works full-time for 15 years and never takes a vacation. And so this guy owes 150,000 years of debt. Does that sound ridiculous? It's meant to sound ridiculous. Jesus tells this story on purpose so that when Peter is thinking about how he's supposed to forgive others, first thing he sees is a man who owes an impossible amount to a king. And he does this because what he wants, what Jesus wants for Peter to do is to take his eyes off of what other people owe him so that he consider for a minute a different scene. Where, where a guy owes a lot more than Peter thinks those other people owe him. And, and Jesus is doing this because he knows how we work. Okay, get this. When we think about forgiveness, I said it already, we almost always think about what other people owe us instead of thinking about what we owe others. And, and here's where Peter is on the spot. And if you know Peter's story from the rest of the New Testament, this will make a little more sense. But what Jesus sees with Peter's question is a man who doesn't understand his own situation before God. And that is that Peter stands before God in exactly the same way this servant stands before this king. That is, Peter's debt before God is so great that if he worked his whole life long, he could never repay it. Now, some of you maybe are able to grasp in this moment why that makes sense. It may seem odd, but when when Peter stands before God, Jesus wants him to see that he'll never be able to repay his debt. And the only way that you and that I can understand anything at all about forgiveness for others is when we see, first of all, our own debt standing before God. I, I know 
that I've done some things wrong. Do you? Not that I've done some things wrong. I'm not asking you that. Do you know that you've done some things wrong? Yes or no? <laughs> but the idea that I owe God 150,000 years of debt doesn't seem reasonable to me because after all, I'm a pretty good guy. I do. I feel like that. Does anybody else feel like, yeah, I'm pretty good? Okay. Then here, let me try to help you see something. The reason that I have a hard time Reckoning my own debt before God, honestly, is because I have a different method of accounting for my failures than God does. And so I'm going to tell you about me. This is what I do, okay? And this is why I think the list that I keep of my wrongs is different than the one that God keeps of my wrongs. Here's the first thing. Whenever I do the wrong thing and I can excuse myself for it, I take that one off of the ledger, Right? If I'm unkind to someone, but I was hungry because it was 12.30 and I hadn't eaten lunch yet, that one comes off. <laughs> right? Or if I was having a stressful week at work and I wasn't as patient with my children as I know I should be, and that's wrong, and I know it's wrong, I take that one off the ledger because after all, it's been difficult at the office. Does anyone else here do that too? I saw someone say all the time. I'm so glad you're with me. And then here's the second thing. When I have a relationship with someone and I do the wrong thing to that person and I know it's wrong, I'm not talking about the things that there's a question about. When I know it's wrong, what I do is I immediately try to do something good because then I can take the bad thing that I did against them off the ledger and replace it with a good one. So for every person that I, I maintain a relationship with, in general, there's at least one more good than bad and so I'm okay there. Do you do that too? Yeah. Right, exactly. Here's the third thing that, that I do and I do this habitually. Because when there's a relationship that I don't manage to balance and it ends, and I've got some of those, where I can look at it and say, I really did the wrong thing. Have you got any of those too? Yes. What I do there is I measure all the bad things they did to me and I subtract them from the bad things I did to them and then I just need a little bit of forgiveness. Anyone else with me? Yes. Yeah. And so in this way, I'm aware of the fact that I need forgiveness, but not very much. <laughs> but I want you to understand that God does not account for my transgressions in that way, and there's a reason. It's not because God is mean and wants a reason to punish me. That's the furthest thing from the truth. It's because of how much God loves me that he won't let me go on deceiving myself with petty excuses. He cares about me too much. And, listen to this, it's because of how much he loves all of the people that I do the wrong to. In fact, God loves every single person that I've ever met so much that any wrong against them is in fact a wrong against him because God chooses to identify himself to be in solidarity with every human being ever made on planet Earth because he loves them and is committed to them that much. And so when I make an excuse for harming someone else, God is patient with me and gentle, but he won't let that take away the harm that I've done to one of his beloved daughters or sons. And every time I do a good thing and try to remove a bad thing, while it's good for me to do good, God cares too much and is too just to let me pretend those bad things I did don't matter at all. And the same goes for when I try to balance out my wrongs against the other. Their wrong does not excuse my wrong ever. It never takes it away. And all of those things that I want to erase from the record against me, they're still there because of how much God cares about me and the people around me. Do you see it? And then there's this other thing. I never write down the things on my account that I would call sins of omission. Do you know what I mean by that? 
Not the sins that I know I've done wrong, but the, the good things that I never do. Have you got any awareness of that in your own life? Every time I could have lent a hand and chose not to. Every time I could have said an encouraging word and I just let the opportunity pass. Every time I could have brought someone in who was out and lonely and and, and inconvenienced myself to try to lift them. Every time I did not do one of those good things, God keeps track of those as well. And God also knows what's in my mind and heart and I deceive myself. I say, if I don't say that mean thing, if I only imagine it, it doesn't really matter. But that's not how it works with God. He actually judges me from the inside out. And that's how it is because of how profoundly he is committed to all of the people around me. And then, and then this is the worst of all of them. And I I hate to even mention it, but I have to. I never, ever keep track of the indirect consequences of the wrong things I do. And the simplest way for me to put this is like this. When someone is harmed by a mean thing that I do, I forget about it. But you know that people pass along their wounds to others. Do you know that? Listen, let's be honest. When someone commits some grievous, miserable crime, you can be sure that behind that awful hatred that they put out into the world is someone behind them and someone behind them who was cruel. And we never keep track of that. But listen, if this is all too much for you, then then you set this aside. It's not too much for me. The truth is, my debt before God is way more than I'm used to paying attention to. And I think that's true about all of us. And, and listen, thank God it's not the end of this story that Jesus told. If it were, then we should all run away in despair. It's not the end of the story. I can identify with the servant who stands before the king and owes 150,000 years of debt when I'm honest with myself. I hope you can too. I think Jesus wanted Peter to in that moment. Because before Jesus could tell Peter what he was responsible for in forgiving others, Peter needed to accept that, listen, now this is the heart of the message this morning, that when Jesus goes and dies on the cross, he does that for Peter and for me and for you and for all people so that our debt could be forgiven. Watch what happens with the king, okay, after uh, this reckoning begins. Okay, this is verse 26. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Can you see in your mind's eye that this man has made a promise and a request, both of which that are absolutely ridiculous? Can you see it? Come on, help me out. Yes or no? Why? Because what he needs is not patience. If he worked for 150,000 years, it still wouldn't work. And he does not need patience. And this promise that I will pay you everything is a lie. He can't make that promise. So he has, he's played a fool right there in front of the king, in front of everyone. The king can see it, obviously. Maybe the guy's managed to deceive himself. But the point here in Jesus' story is that anyone who stands before God and thinks that he can work hard enough to make things right is absolutely foolish. Anyone who says to God, well, just have patience and I'll fix everything is out of his mind, just like this man is totally out of his mind. But the king has none of it. Watch what he does. This is so magnificent. And this is verse 27. Out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. The one thing that the man needs is exactly what the king can see, and it's mercy. He needs, in legal terms, clemency. Have you ever heard that word? I had to look it up in the dictionary. It's a good word. (laughs) Clemency is where the judge decides not to give the person what they deserve. And that's what this man needs. He needs forgiveness. And the Lord of that slave decides to forgive him. Some of you I know well enough for me to know what this means to say to you. You are forgiven. 
I know some of your stories a little bit. You are forgiven because the Lord, your Lord looks at you and he delights in forgiving you. Some of you I've never met before. I've never seen your faces ever before. I can say it to you too. This story proclaims not just something about some king and a servant and not just something about Jesus and Peter, but about all people that God looks at you and says, I release you from your debt. Why? Do you see the motivation for the king in this story? The word there, look up there. Do you see which word it is? Someone shout out the one word that describes why the king did it. Pity, right? And it's a pretty bad word to translate the Greek word behind it. And I kind of, I baited you and hooked you on that one, but forgive me. Let me explain. Pity sounds like the king looks at him and says, what a loser, right? You pity people that you look down on. In Greek, the word is splankna. That's a good word, right? I practiced saying it like that. Splankizomai. Um, thank you for laughing. You're humoring me. The ancient Greeks had a practice of sacrificing animals, and when they did, they took out the kidneys and the guts, and that part of the animal was called the splankna. The ancient Greeks also were, were master uh, employers of language. Have you ever had that experience where you see someone else's misery and it matters so much to you that it twists you up on the inside, like it hits you in the kidneys and the intestines? Have you had that experience? Any parent who watches their child suffering and can't stop it knows exactly what splankna is. The ancient Greeks used that word splankizomai to describe compassion. What it's like when another person's challenges are so intimately a part of your own heart's experience that it twists your guts up. And this king, looking at that, that debtor who had his excuses and his ridiculous promises, instead of experiencing what I'm sure I would have experienced, which is complete disregard for him and said, you don't know what you're talking about. You can never pay me back. Instead, his guts are twisted up at the sight of this man's misery and need. That word splunkna, it's used twice in the New Testament to describe the internal experiences of characters in stories that Jesus tells. Two other times. You know the story of the Good Samaritan? Everybody knows about the Good Samaritan. Do you know it, yes or no? Yes. It's, it's when this guy gets beat up and left for dead and twice, two times, the religious leaders walk right past him as if it's not their problem. They have no compassion at all for him. Jesus told this story, by the way, and he told it in the hearing of a bunch of religious leaders who believed they were close to God because of their religion, and other people who didn't have religion were far away from God. And then in Jesus' story, a third guy walks down the road. He's a Samaritan. He's the people that the religious leaders in that, he's, he's from the group, the ethnic group, who the religious leaders in that, they would never think could be anything other than the villain in a story. And in Jesus' story, he feels compassion for the guy, and he goes down and he heals his wounds. And Jesus says, you should do that. Isn't that beautiful? The other scene in which this word is used, well, it's used in the reunion between the prodigal son and his father. Some of you know that story? A father leaves his son behind, a son leaves his father behind, taking all of his father's property with him. And he goes and he tries to live it up without any relationship at all with the father because he thinks life will be better away from the father. And then when life falls to pieces and he's ruined, as, as life always does, according to Jesus, when you're far away from God. 
This man grovels all the way back to the father, thinking maybe he can be treated as a slave. And the moment his father sees him, he's filled with splankna, compassion. His guts are twisted up, and he receives this young son back, full of love and compassion. In those two in those two characters, we see something similar to the king in Jesus' third story where he uses that term. That word splunkna is only used once in the New Testament of an actual person. And it's, it's the experience that Jesus has when he comes to Jerusalem and he sees the people and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He feels compassion for them, splunkna. Jesus' insides are turned up. Can you see that in this story that Jesus told to Peter, He's painting a self-portrait. That king is Jesus. The king who looks at you and looks at me in our debt, and our impossible debt, and feels compassion. He lets our need, and it is our need because we can never solve our problems on our own. He lets those needs go right into his heart so that our burdens become his burdens. So that in the language of Colossians, Jesus himself could choose to take the legal record with its demands against us away from us and, and allow it to be nailed to the cross when he was nailed to the cross. What happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross? What did Jesus do on the cross? Jesus was put to death so that the legal record with its demands against you personally could also be put to death. Whatever you need to do to put the sins of other people out of your mind for a moment, and acknowledge your own shortcomings. Let that happen for an instance, and then trust me now. Listen. When Jesus died on the cross, this is what the Bible teaches. That record of wrongs, your record of wrongs, was taken out of your hands by God, the one who has the authority to determine what to do with those things, and it was nailed to the cross. What should you do? Now here I have two things that are very important to point out to you. The first is in regards to the record of your wrongs. What you should do is leave them on the cross. And this simply means to receive and accept the kindness and grace of God for you personally. That does not mean that you should pretend what you've done wrong doesn't matter. It matters more than you've even dreamed. It does. But it does mean that God, who has the authority to make such decisions, has chosen to order things in such a way that he demands you let go of them so that he can take them away from you and put them on the cross. Believing that, you should be joyful and glad. You should be filled with gratitude, the kind of gratitude that frees you from what's behind and makes you ask, what can I do now that is good in this world? How can I be a person who reflects the grace and, and mercy that was given to me, to the people around me? Thank God I've been forgiven. How can I turn outward? And here, this leads us to the second thing, which, if you remember, is why Jesus told the story in the first place. Now, if you've accepted that first step, you're ready to hear the answer that Peter asked, which is, how should I forgive other people? And this is really serious. The reason that Jesus told this story, again, was because Peter asked about forgiving others. And if we will not give the mercy that we have received to others, we will find ourselves in a very difficult position. Are you getting this? And this is critical. One of the mistakes that Christians make when they talk about forgiveness is they talk about it as if it's how you personally get into heaven. That's not the way Jesus talked about it. Instead, it's a responsibility that we bear in relationship to others because of what God has done for us. 
Right now, come back to the story for a moment because Jesus is a great storyteller. If you remember, this man asked for patience and promised to pay back his debt. The king forgave him his debt. Can you put yourself in that man's position for a moment, having been relieved of all of that debt? Watch what happens in Jesus' story. This is verse 28. But that same slave, as he went out, that means he left the courtroom behind, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does it sound familiar? Does the promise sound familiar? I will pay you what I owe you. It's the exact same thing that this first man had paid. Does the request sound familiar? Have patience with me. It's the same thing that he had just asked for from the other man. The one thing that you might not know is that a denarii is what a man can earn if he works for one day. And so this man owes his fellow slave about three and a half months worth of labor. And so in this case, his promise and his request are perfectly reasonable, unlike the previous case. And in this moment, this man stands to make a decision Is he going to respond to the forgiveness that he has received in an appropriate way or not? Will he pass along the grace that was given to him to someone else? This is not a theoretical question. In Jesus' mind, it's not meant to be for Peter. And may I say to you that if you are willing to receive the good news of God's grace and forgiveness for you in Jesus Christ, then this is where the rubber hits the road for you. Will you pass along the grace that God has shown to you or not? This is what happens in the story, verse 30. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. Do you know what is impossible for this man who owes 100 denarii to do while he's in prison? He can't work to pay off the debt. So the man who binds him and grabs him around the throat and throws him in prison, he ensures that nothing good is ever going to happen from there on forward with the man in prison, but he doesn't know it. He also does the same for himself because every time you bind someone in unforgiveness, guess who else is also bound? You are. Now, he can't see it, but right now he looks absolutely absurd in the eyes of the king, and I want to challenge you this morning. And I don't always uh, feel the need to challenge this strongly, but I want to challenge every one of you in this way. This is exactly how you look to God when you will not forgive a person who has wronged you. And let me say it like this. This is exactly how I looked to God this morning when I woke up and I thought yet again of that thing that that other guy did to me that I'm having a really hard time forgiving him about. That's personal. That's not make-believe what I just said. It's true. Forgiveness does not mean pretending that that thing that other person did to you was not a big deal. It was a big deal. Forgiveness does not mean trusting that person who's proved that they cannot be trusted yet again. That's not what it means. It's not being naive. It doesn't mean that this guy should hire that worker again and say, okay, fine, come and work for me again. No, Forgiveness is none of that. And in fact, forgiveness means choosing to make a step forward in something which is impossible for you to do. And here I can tell you that I have no idea how hard it is for you to actually forgive the person that's in your mind right now. I know that. And if someone tells you, oh, I know how hard it is, they don't know what they're saying. You are the only person 
in this room right now who understands how offensive and wrong and wounding it was that that person did that thing to you. You've buried it for a long time. You've managed to pretend it wasn't such a big deal, but you were the only one who knows how big a deal it was. Only you and God himself know. And what Jesus invites this, what Jesus paints with this picture and what he's inviting Peter to and what he's inviting us to is to do this impossible thing, which is to choose to stop doing what we always do. And you know what I always do? is I always attribute all of my failures to the circumstances and I attribute his failures, failures to the, the character in him. Does anyone else do this too? Do you know what I'm saying? Right? When I did the wrong thing, I said, well, look, look, it was the circumstances. I was tired and I was hungry and I was stressed. And when he did the wrong thing, it's because of his character. He's a bad person. He's not honest. Do you do that too? We all do. This is a moment for Peter listening to Jesus. It's a moment for me standing before you and preaching, it's a moment for every one of you here to decide what are we going to do with the forgiveness that we've been given. Are we going to accept that God has taken the legal record with its demands out of our hands and, listen now, also the legal record against that other person out of their hands so it also would be nailed to the cross? And, and hear this. You ready? If you go to the cross and try to take the legal record against that other person down from the cross so you can keep resenting them, guess what's going to happen? Your legal record is also going to come down with it in your hands. You can't take theirs off without also removing your own. What happens in Jesus' story? The other servants see what this ungrateful guy did and they go report it to the master, and the master comes to him and says, you are so wicked. I forgave you all that debt, and you couldn't forgive this guy a few days' debt? Okay, let's do with you exactly what you decided to do with him. And he throws him in prison, and he tells him, you can stay there until you pay back every penny you owe me, just like you sentenced your fellow slave. And that means he's going to be imprisoned forever. Does that sound serious? It is. I have to say, it's a bit of an indictment on us Christians because of how uncommon it is for us to prioritize forgiveness over everything else when we start to talk about the things that make other people far away from God. Do you know what I mean? The ethical issues that we decide to fight with each other about, how often is it that we say, like, well, I haven't actually forgiven my brother from my heart, so I better get that right. Here's how Jesus ends his story. It's a warning. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I'm afraid that that is so clear that there is nothing that I could do to add to it. So all I have to say is no comment. Except for this. This is the one comment I'll make. And I'm, I'm going to plead with you on this one. Leave their legal record with the wrongs against you, leave it where God has decided to put it on the cross so that your legal record also can remain where God has decided to put it, which is on the cross. Dear friends, because of the grace of God, we are forgiven. Thank God. Let's pray. God, I thank you so, so much for the gift of your grace in Jesus. I thank you that every wrong, every misdeed, every mistake, every sin, every trespass, every iniquity that I myself am guilty of has been taken away from me and nailed to the cross. 
I thank you that that is true also of every person who can hear my voice this morning. It's easy to imagine how hard it would be for us to forgive others, but I thank you that in the story that Jesus told, the first thing is for us to accept how much grace you've shown to us because you've had compassion for us. I thank you that our guilt twists you up on the inside because you want to free us of it. Help us receive and accept that. And then make us into people who are able to pass that along joyfully to the people who have wronged us. And I ask very simply that the cycle of evil and hate and cruelty would be broken by the only force in the whole entire world that's strong enough to break it, which is love. Self-giving love. Help us follow Jesus, who did not fight back or strike back or hate back, but instead loved by giving his life. Teach us to do that, and then teach us to be people of joy as we learn to give as you have given. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.